Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead Ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Battleground Ukraine with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. Well, after indications that a Ukrainian breakthrough might be imminent, progress on the battlefield slowed down this week with no news of further significant advances. Kyiv has tried to sustain morale by revealing details of an extraordinary amphibious raid mounted by their special forces some weeks back, which resulted in putting Ukrainian boots on Crimean soil for the first time since 2014. Now, this went some way to compensating for a gloomy development on the diplomatic front. This was the news that in neighbouring Slovakia, the party of former three times Prime Minister Robert Fico emerged at the top of the recent election, and he's now bolting together a coalition government. Why does this matter? Well, Fico campaigned on a pro-Moscow ticket, promising to send not a single bullet to Ukraine if he won power. Well, now it seems he has. Does this mean that Slovakia's previous position, sending arms, taking in Ukrainian refugees and supporting NATO and EU positions in the conflict is over? We'll discuss. But first, let's be honest, all a bit disappointing on the counteroffensive, no? Yeah, well, if last week's progress was slow but steady, this week, unfortunately, it's just slow. The focus of operations remains in Western Zaporizhia Oblast and Bakhmut. But as far as one can tell, no more villages have been taken in that push southwards towards Tokmak and Melitopol. What is a bit more heartening is rumbles from the Russian information space, all of which paint a picture of dissension inside the Russian military, with milled bloggers praising commanders who've tried to stand up for their men against a corrupt and incompetent high command, and painting a picture of heavy losses and slumping morale. It's a complicated story, of course, but it centers around the figure of Colonel General Mikhail Teplinsky, the Russian Airborne Forces commander who often pops up on the show. Now, he's a popular figure with the troops and is seen as one of the good guys, prepared to take on the likes of Valery Gerasimov, who, despite numerous controversies, is still incredibly head of the general staff. Now, this story comes via a mill blogger, a frontline commander himself called Alexander Khodorkovsky. You'll have to listen carefully now because there are a lot of names. 
Now, he, Khodorkovsky, claims that back in September, he was told the tale of woe by an airborne brigade commander named Andrei Kondrashkin about how he was under pressure from on high, presumably from the MOD in Moscow, that is, to throw his men into pointless battles around Bakhmut, even though his men's morale was at rock bottom. Kondrashkin was killed in combat, whereupon Toplinsky stepped in to gather up the remnants of the brigade and send them off on R&R. Now, two other airborne brigades were in a similarly dismal state in Western Zaporizhia, suffering high losses and low morale. This time, however, Toplinsky wasn't able to do anything for them because, according to the mill bloggers, he's being, and I quote, quietly stripped of his responsibilities. Now, this may all sound like inside baseball to our listeners, but it is significant, isn't it, Saul? I mean, here you have named frontline commanders bigging up their field commander, i.e. Toplinsky, and slagging off the brass back in Moscow, all in the middle of a major battle. They're also absolutely open about the scale of losses and the terrible morale, which all makes me wonder why it is that it hasn't collapsed completely, given that all the factors are present from mutiny, one would think, desertions, and a general loss of the will to fight. Well, it may be one of those mysteries of the Russian soul that we will never fathom. Anyway, there don't seem to be any significant morale problems on the Ukrainian side, and certainly not among their special forces. Earlier this week, Kiev revealed details of an extraordinary amphibious operation launched on 24th of uh, August, that's Ukrainian Independence Day, across the Black Sea to strike at a base on the western tip of the Crimean Peninsula. So what happened was 10 jet skis carrying 20 men made this uh, 265 mile round trip. That's, uh, that's quite a distance in a jet ski and uh, shot up an electronic warfare facility. They all got back safely to the surprise, it seems, of British and US Special Forces advisors who'd warned them against the enterprise. They succeeded in doing some damage to the base, but the main result, it seems to me, was to photograph themselves raising the Ukrainian flag on Crimean Ukrainian soil for the first time since the Russians seized the peninsula back in 2014. Now, you know, it's it's obviously a, a big feat, but it, it does strike me as a bit odd, Saul. It's reminiscent to me of the raids that Churchill was so keen on uh, launching into occupied Europe during the dark days of the war, you know, the sort of 1942, early 1942 period. Of course, the big one was the Saint-Nazaire raid, Operation Chariot, in March 1942. Of course, they, they claimed there was a real military purpose to it, which was to destroy the dry dock there, which was capable of handling the German super battleship Tirpitz, if it ever got into the Atlantic, to attack the convoys. In fact, it was already pretty clear that this wasn't going to happen. So its real purpose was to show, fight, and raise civilian spirits. I mean, the raid stopped as soon as the Allies began serious operations in the Mediterranean theatre or the Western Mediterranean theatre with the landings in North Africa, which you know all about, Saul. That's your latest book, isn't it? But surely the Ukrainian military is bigger fish to fry now, wouldn't you say, rather than messing around with what are, let's face it, propaganda stunts. 
Yeah, I think you're setting yourself up for a, a bit of comeback on this one, Patrick. The the Operation Chariot, as you mentioned, San Nazar Raid, one of the most famous of the Second World War. Uh, five VCs off the top of my head, I think. And yes, you're probably right. The consequences of the raid have probably been overdone. But I don't think we should underestimate the effect of morale with some of these raids. Um, my forthcoming book, not the one I'm writing at the moment about North Africa, but the forthcoming book, Sky Warriors has a raid right at the beginning called Operation Colossus, which takes place in Italy. Actually, it's not very well known, early 1941. So only a few months after they've created the first airborne forces, they dropped this team of airborne engineers into Italy to blow up a viaduct. Now, they managed that, but the viaducts repaired relatively quickly. And it really, in the end, has very little uh, practical material effect. And not only that, all the guys on the mission, about 35 of them, were all captured. So you could say it's a bit of a balls up, but actually, it had a tremendous uh, morale raising effect on the British on the one hand. So it was a real um, propaganda coup. I mean, think about this, Patrick, you're you're in Italy, you're, you're some little national guard effectively uh, protecting some installation and you never know from one day to the next that airborne troops are going to drop around you so it had a real effect on the British on the one hand but also the Italians on the other because they were on tenterhooks practically for the rest of their involvement in the war which of course ends in 1943 uh, and these raids weren't just airborne raids there were also SBS raids too so I do think from the morale point of view and particularly when we consider that Crimea in the in the view of a lot of western westerners is really lost to Ukraine for good that actually landing Ukrainian servicemen there really is quite an achievement okay well I I, st- I take your points I stand I stand rebuked on this one and actually even as you were speaking I was thinking well you know that you've got to be make a distinction about what is um, clearly of dubious military value and what isn't. I do honestly think that San Nazaire was pretty much a waste of time and lives and effort, uh, but something that Churchill, you know, was was always up for. But you know, it was a very another raid, much smaller raid around that time, the Bruneval raid, which you'll know all about as well from your airborne uh, researches, where you know, a small team drops on a in the mid midst of winter and on a uh, cliff top in Normandy for a very specific purpose, which is to seize components from a new type of radar that's been spotted operating from there and which the RAF police is having a very negative effect on their raiding operations into Germany. So that went off like clockwork. They dropped in, they shoot up the radar station, they capture the components, they go down to the beach where there's a uh, a naval patrol waiting for them, which picks them up and takes them back to Britain. So that was actually, you know, went off beautifully and had a real genuine uh, positive benefit at the end of it. So, yeah, I mean, we've got to be careful about what you say. But um, we could go on like this forever, but we better get back to uh, the issue in hand. Now, what do you make of this election of of Robert Fico in, in Slovakia? Well, whichever way we painted it, it is a bit of a setback. We flagged it up last week, of course, uh, or at least last week or possibly the week before. But now it's come to pass. The election of Fico, you know, is not good news for Ukraine. He's a colourful character, bodybuilder, likes fast cars. He's rude, especially to women, and comes across as a man of the people, a sort of populist type. But he's quite tricky to identify politically with any certainty. He's ostensibly a populist and an EU beta, like Hungary's Viktor Orban, 
whom he admires. But he also likes Vladimir Putin and says he would not arrest him as a war criminal if he arrived in Slovakia. And as a quick aside to that, I should say, given my Armenian heritage and, of course, the ongoing issue over Nagorno-Karabakh with Azerbaijan, uh, and there'll be a relevance to this that I'll get to in a second, it's interesting that Armenia has just ratified the ICC's legitimacy uh, in relation to Putin. So, so that you can see Armenia, which was formerly very much within the orbit of Russia, is moving in the opposite direction. But let's get back to Slovakia and FICO. He's been very upfront about his determination to cut all military aid to Ukraine if he got got into power. Well, he's trying to cobble a coalition together between his party, Smyr, which, by the way, has a reputation for corruption. And the likeliest pairing is with a party called Halas, which is relatively moderate and is pro-Ukraine. So that may, of course, be a restraining factor. Despite the tough talk, Fico has proved himself to be quite pragmatic and flexible in the past. He's been prime minister three times and is a bit of a ducker and diver in a political sense. So it may not be quite as black for Ukraine as it looks at first sight. And we ought to remind our listeners that uh, the last time Fico was prime minister, this was five years ago, he was ejected after mass protests when a young journalist investigating corruption in his party, a young man called Jan Kuciak, was murdered along with his fiancée, which makes one wonder why so many Slovaks were prepared to vote for him again. Smur got nearly 23% of the vote. Uh, Then there's the fact of his vehemently pro-Moscow campaigning stance. So I think, you know, we here in Britain imagine that if you can remember the Cold War and, and you lived in the pretty grim circumstances of life in the Soviet bloc, then that would make you pretty much anti-Russian for life. But it's a very mixed picture. So in Poland, you you get anti-Moscow feeling there very strongly. Uh, And it's also strong in Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania. But in Hungary and Slovakia, not so much. In Slovakia, it seems that this may have something to do with the fact that before the war in Ukraine began in earnest, the country was getting almost 100% of its oil and gas from Russia. Now it's being forced to source energy elsewhere, and the price has gone up and severely impacted the cost of living. Polling shows a lot of people think that by supporting Ukraine, they're basically putting themselves in Moscow's firing line. Now, all this sounds rather a kind of self-centered approach to the great issues of the day, but there we are. Look, I don't think even if Fico did do exactly what he says he was going to do, it would make much difference to the arithmetic of the war. So far, Slovakia has given Ukraine 13 MiG-29s, but I don't think there are any more to come. You know, the cupboard's bare, really. So I don't think Ukraine would be looking to Slovakia for any kind of significant uh, future arms deliveries. But nonetheless, it's another indication that the political landscape is changing all the time, particularly if, if you live in the sort of democratic sphere. And Ukraine's support base is obviously changing along with it. The real one, of course, that they're worried about is uh, what's going to happen in the US. The clock's ticking. And it seems to me uh, the chances of a Biden or a Democratic victory do not seem to be improving. No, and even more concerning, Patrick, are immediate issues such as the decision this week by Congress to pause the support, the spending support for Ukraine. Now, that may just be a pause. And of course, there is infighting as to who is going to run Congress. The Republicans, of course, have a majority in one of the houses, which potentially means that if they really dig in their toes over spending generally and support for Ukraine in particular, there could be an impasse. And of course, 
I remember a few years ago when I was researching in, in the US that pretty much the whole country shut down and I wasn't able to get into various archives because most of them are government run and very well run they are too because of this pause in government spending and there is a danger that's going to happen again and that the money of course that comes out of government spending and goes to Ukraine will be affected as a result of this so it's not just the issue of whether the Republicans are going to win, it, it could be a more short-term issue too. So that is all concerning for sure. Okay, that's it for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be answering listeners' questions and hearing their news, including a new sighting of good old Yevgeny Prigozhin. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome back to Listener's Questions. Well, let's start, as Patrick's already flagged up, with our world exclusive. And it comes from David Faulkner. And he writes, I thought you might be interested to know that I spotted Yevgeny Prigozhin earlier today in the Costco store at Avonmouth near Bristol. That's my neck of the woods, Patrick, actually. I don't go to that store myself, but I know exactly the sort of terrain that David's talking about. He goes on to say, as you are aware, he is a master of disguise, but he has now supplemented his ability to emerge into his local surroundings by developing a thick West Country accent. That is pretty impenetrable, I must say. So it's actually often quite hard to tell what people are saying. David goes on to say, I'm pretty sure it was Putin's one-time chef because he was in the pasta aisle buying some provisions. And when I asked him how things were going, he threatened to hit me with a sledgehammer and then muttered something about the betrayal of the motherland. <laughs> all in all, it was a pretty intimidating experience. My only hope is that he can find a suitable outlet for his aggression, as he clearly has some deep-seated issues. I will keep you posted if I see him again. And next time, if he consents, we'll try and get you a photo by way of verification. Well, thank you, David. And I have to say a little bit of light relief is required on this show occasionally, Patrick, given the sort of news we have to disseminate. Yeah, well, keep him coming. He's obviously, uh, he's had enough of Venezuela and has uh, decided to roam a bit wider. Of course, you know, on, on the issue of disguises, you remember all those kind of weird pictures of the of the wigs and moustaches and all sorts of feature-altering things that were found on the raid on his uh, mansion in St. Petersburg? It was never discovered whether that was actually planted there to make him look ridiculous or whether he really did go around uh, wearing these kind of ill-fitting wigs, etc. 
Okay, we've got another question from Jay Wilson. He's in Scotland, Inverness, uh, where I will be in a couple of weeks, actually, on my SBS paddle, more of that anon. Jay asks, I wanted to ask if you could comment on or do a piece on Ukraine's railways and the viability of a program to change the track gauge to standard gauge, that's the British European gauge, while the war continues. My understanding is the railways in Ukraine and Russia are an important aspect of war infrastructure and historically hold a great symbolic significance. It seems that while the entry of Ukraine into the EU and NATO could take years, a practical measure like a massive effort to quickly change the rail gauge to the European standard and away from the Russian standard would have an outsize effect and could be begun immediately. Patrick, what do you think about this? Well, I've done a bit of research on this. It's, it's, it often pops up, doesn't it? And when we were there ourselves, we saw, you know, the practical difficulties of operating on two gauges. Basically, first thing to say is that, yes, Jay, you're right about the uh, about the importance or the crucial importance of railways to Ukraine's war effort and indeed to life in general. It's a big country, Ukraine, and taking the train is the best way to get around for many rather than driving along endless, not very good roads. One thing you do notice when you cross from Poland to Ukraine is the quality of the infrastructure. The road on the Polish side of the border is a brand spanking new dual carriageway, thanks largely to its membership of the EU. But once you get over the other side, you're on a shabby single track. So the same is true of the railways. Uh, the Ukrainian railways still operate on the old Soviet broad gauge, which I think is 152 centimetres, roughly 10 centimetres wider than the EU gauge. What happens now is at the border, they basically lift the carriages or the rolling stock off one set of bogies and lower them onto another. So it's a very laborious process. And yes, I mean, this is obviously something that was being looked at actually before the, the Russian invasion. And um, there are programs underway funded by the EU to extend the EU gauge track over the border to sort of various border points. The same is true, actually, of Moldova. They've got the same problem. But in this case, what we're talking about is extending the line from Krakow to cross the border to Lviv. So it will actually go all the way to Lviv as a first stage. I think there are nine projects in hand at the moment. So it's actually being addressed. So what happens thereafter, you know, it'll be obviously be a slow process to replace all the track in Ukraine with EU standard track. But I mean, something that's impressed me is the way that all these infrastructure projects are going on, even while the war is in progress. My wife is involved in some of them. And yeah, she's she's uh, tremendously positive about the way that the Ukrainian authorities are already engaging with the future, if you like. Now, all this makes me sound like a bit of a train spotter, doesn't it? So strangely enough, I was in Peter <laughs> Peterborough last week. <laughs> And I did see some train spotters. I thought this was an extinct species, but there were some elderly gentlemen at the end of the platform noting uh, all the trains as they came and went. Were you ever into train spotting? No, but it's interesting you say they were elderly gentlemen because I do remember being astonished at the relative youth of some of the train spotters uh, back in my time. So when I was about 20, 25, there would be people who were of a similar age, maybe a little bit older in their 30s. So it now seems that if it is a dying breed, those guys are growing up now. They are sort of age, Patrick. Um, and you don't really get the younger generation uh, involved in this sort of stuff. Whether that's a good thing or not, I'll, I'll let the listeners uh, judge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was in Peterborough, Saul, because I was on my way to RAF Cranwell to give a talk at a conference, the um, 
chief of the air staff's leadership conference entitled Warfighter Ethos, the Leading Edge. And this was under the auspices of their TEDA Academy of Leadership. It was a great couple of days and fantastic people. But what was really encouraging was how many kind of compliments I got about the about the podcast, you know, saying that we're doing a, a good job and keeping up, so blowing our own trumpet here. But what I also wanted to say is how incredibly impressive it always is when you come across service guys, you know, in there and gals, you know, there's plenty of women in senior positions in the RAF now. And it's just kind of very uplifting when you, you kind of get reconnect with that can-do spirit and a kind of positive out, outlook on life. So it's, thanks very much for inviting me and really good that uh, people are enjoying the podcast. Right. On to Aaron Stultz. He's in Indiana in the USA. Uh, and he's got a question about Crimea. The push to cut off the Russian land bridge brings up several questions. After nine years, does the average Crimean think of himself, herself as a Russian citizen? Or have they, outside of a few quizlings, maintained their Ukrainian identity in defiance of the illegal annexation? And to what extent can Ukraine count on partisan activity and or popular uprisings once they've isolated Russian forces there? Well, very good questions, Aaron. Uh, And let me give you a little bit of insight that I personally got when I was conducting a tour of the Crimean War, that is the 19th century war in Crimea, including the charge of the Light Brigade about 15 years ago. While I was there, I was speaking to a number of people who basically gave me a pretty strong indication that there was a pro-Russian leaning in Crimea at that time. And so this is long before 2014. And when I asked, you know, what, 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 what did they mean more specifically? They said, well, about 70% of the population, the Crimean population was ethnic Russian. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, as we know from other items we've had on the show, that that necessarily means they're pro-Russian now. And of course, clearly, a lot of people, particularly in the eastern regions, have got very little time for what Russia has done. And this probably is strengthening, even given their Russian ethnicity, it's strengthening their Ukrainian uh, sense of uh, identity. On the other hand, what seems to have happened in Crimea is that there's been a certain amount of ethnic cleansing, the encouragement of Ukrainians leaving and the insertion of a lot of Russians from other parts of Russia into the Crimean Peninsula. And this is all building up trouble in the long term because the Ukrainians have have made no bones about the fact that anyone who's arrived after 2014 is going to be expected to leave. So there is trouble afoot. Uh, What the average Crimea resident is thinking is very hard to say, but I suspect there's a little bit more sympathy for Russia in Crimea than probably even some of the other republics that are currently under Russian control. Yeah, it is quite hard to get a fix on, isn't it, Saul? Um, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. What seems to have happened is that uh, after 2014, anyone who was, you know, basically felt themselves to be Ukrainian, uh, was sympathetic to Kiev, was was probably going to leave anyway. And then, as you say, there's been a uh, a lot of inducements uh, given to uh, people back in Russia to settle there. I think a lot of them are quite elderly. So as I understand it, it's become a bit of a Bournemouth on the Black Sea. So who, uh, on that partisan front, they clearly, they clearly are getting some information, I would have thought, with news all from you know, all these recent strikes on Crimea. There seems to be a sort of human intelligence element in the planning there. But I wouldn't imagine uh, that you're actually talking about sort of bands of partisans who are going to rise up when the peninsula is actually directly threatened by Ukrainian forces. Uh, Major retired Austin Hind writes from 
Gloucestershire, UK, and he spent 30 years in the army, British army, that is, as a military logistician. And he's intrigued by the difficulties that both sides have encountered with their logistics, both strategic and tactical. He says there's been much touting of innovations and technology in Western forces to overcome our own military logistics shortcomings, i.e. the lack of lift and personnel. Uh, Now, he's basically asking whether there's anything that uh, we've seen on either side uh, in the Ukrainian conflict, which suggests that there have been advances in the way of doing resupply missions at scale. That is to say, large lifts of weapons and stores, I suppose. He finishes up like all good soldiers, with a quote from von Clausewitz, which is, there is nothing more common than to find considerations of supply affecting the strategic lines of a campaign and a war. It doesn't sound like particularly, it's not one of Clausewitz's better ones. It's not very snappy. (laughs) Anyway, he's basically saying, is it going to come down to logistics? Will the winner of this war be the one who manages their logistics best? Got any thoughts on that, Saul? Well, the answer is, of course, yes. And anyone who watched my uh, BBC4 series, Boots, Bullets and Bandages, will remember that I make the point repeatedly uh, and even laboriously, possibly by the end of that series, that it, it all comes down to logistics. You need to get the kit, the morale, the everything needs to be in place before you can actually fight the battle. And Phil O'Brien, who we quote many times on this podcast, because he is one of the most incisive commentators of the war, he's uh, a professor up at St. Andrews, also makes this point. He's so frustrated that there's this endless focus on battles uh, and not on actually winning the war more broadly in an economic sense, but also in a supply sense. So what the Ukrainians are clearly trying to do, Patrick, and why it's so difficult for us to kind of really get a, a sense of their success in so doing is interdict the lines of supply. We've made this we've made this point many times. And of course, ATAC M's, which it does now look will be supplied to the Ukrainians, are going to hugely improve their ability to do exactly this, which is to hit, of course, command centers, but also supply depots. And the means by which Russia supplies, it's already poorly supplied troops. So you can see that this sort of war effort, the damaging of uh, the enemy's economy more broadly, and that, of course, is really coming down to the the restrictions on which the Russian economy can operate, but more specifically on the battlefield or close to the battlefield, which is why Clausewitz is right to make the point that strategy is all about logistics. Because if you can't feed and supply your men with ammunition and everything else that they need to survive on the battlefield, you cannot win a war. So it does seem that Ukraine is uh, has the huge advantage in this sense. Whether we're going to reach that tipping point anytime soon is another matter, Patrick. And as you quite rightly pointed out earlier in the show, it's astonishing given the, the, the morale issues that there are in the Russian army that we haven't seen more evidence of it cracking up. But I think I should just make the really obvious point that you've effectively got a, a, a gun at your back in the Russian army. And if there's any sign of dissent, desertion, indiscipline, there's a chance you're you're literally going to be knocked off. You're not going to be sent to, you know, to to prison as you would be in a Western army. You're going to be shot. So I think that ultimate penalty is something that does keep people in the line a lot longer than it might in other armies. We have an interesting one here from Keith Young, who has previously accommodated a Ukrainian family. Now, this is a topic I've been hearing quite a lot about in recent weeks. This family have now decided decided to return to Kiev, which is where they come from, because they feel that it's safe enough to go home. And he's now taking in another family. 
But he says there are a number of refugee families in my area and they all feature men either permanently resident or freely coming and going from Ukraine. And he's sort of basically wondering why it is, what, what is the protocol which governs you know, the freedom of movement of Ukrainian males. We've heard in the past, haven't we, that uh, men of fighting age, which is quite broadly interpreted, are not allowed to leave Ukraine. So sort of what's going on here? Well, the answer is, Keith, I don't know, but I, I think it's worth looking into because uh, it's a model, isn't it? You, you, Ukraine's treatment of its population, the, the way it's sort of managed the manpower and the woman power is is absolutely fascinating. And I think there'll be all sorts of data emerging from that, which will be fascinating when we see how modern 21st century societies go to war in something that, that requires a mobilization of all resources, uh, both human and physical. So, yeah, I mean, that's something that we're going to look into. We'll come back to it and look at it in a future episode. Okay, we've got an interesting one from Ivan from Cancun in Mexico, who tells us that his mother is Ukrainian, so he appreciates the work we are doing. Uh, but he wants to share a couple of things with us. Firstly, after another listener's question about trustworthy charities, he's got a suggestion. He has previously donated to a team of medical volunteers that go every month to Ukraine and provide free medical assistance in small communities that lack good health care. Roxanne Jones is the nurse in charge. See, she and the team do really great work. You can see what they do on the ground in the links I'll include, and I'll read those out in a minute. Secondly, I live in Mexico, and Russian propaganda and, in general, anti-Western opinions are quite widespread here. I would love to know more about any work being done by Ukraine and the West to get the global south on Ukraine's side, or at least away from Russian influence. What are your thoughts on the strategies that Russia is using. Well, just to uh, deal with the first bit first, the group he's talking about, the charity is Global Care Force. They have a Facebook page, that's Global Care Force. And if you check, look that up on Facebook and also a website, uh, that's www.globalcareforce.org. Anyone can donate easily to the team members on the website. Well, as far as the second question is concerned about the Russian propaganda in Mexico, it is tricky, isn't it, Patrick? Because if you're a country that has a kind of sly anti-UK, US in particular in Western feel, you're naturally going to be a little bit more sympathetic to Russia's plight. And, and it is difficult to know how you turn the tide on, on that because there is a, a natural kind of empathy among the global South to these countries that, you know, have some kind of historical links with them. And we've spoken about the sort of Soviet connections in the past, but also have this kind of anti-imperialist uh, kind of Western feel too. So it definitely is difficult to, to turn that around, I think. Patrick, any thoughts? Well, just simply that. I mean, the money that Russia spent in, let's just take Africa for an example, supporting, first of all, you know, anti-imperialist movements, you know, freedom fighters, I suppose, uh, generally, clearly was very well spent because that emotional bond that was connected there also opening up places in Russian universities to students from Africa, etc. It's paid huge dividends because there is this very long-standing now loyalty, which seems to uh, survive despite uh, all Russia's wrongdoing subsequently. And whereas imperialism, colo old colonial you know, British, French, European colonialism is only interpreted in a negative way as being entirely exploitative in the African narrative. It seems that the have accepted Russia's presentation of itself as being essentially their 
out of humanitarian positive motivation. So, you know, it's, it, it is a fantastically successful operation. How long it will take to erode, I have no idea, and how we counter it. I think going back in and preaching to the, to um, people in the global south and saying, well, no, you've got this all wrong. In fact, the Russians are worse than we were. We may not have been great, but we were well-intentioned. Is only going to make things worse. So I think it's one of those cases where time just has to run its course. Yeah, as a quick addition to that, Patrick, it, it is pretty astonishing that Russia, which is really behaving like a 19th century even early 20th century imperial power isn't really being called out for the sort of crimes that a lot of these countries in the global south, you know, resent in their own histories. But but there we go. Simon doesn't say where he's from, asks, at the outset of this war, many assumed Russian Spetsnaz troops would be highly effective and a significant threat to the Ukrainians. Now, Spetsnaz, we'll all remember, I'm sure, is are the kind of special forces. They're meant to be the kind of superman of the... Uh, of the Russian military. Anyway, after the debacle in Kiev, says Simon, they seem not to have featured at all. Is this an inaccurate assumption? He also, Simon, adds that, by the way, I served in an armoured regiment in Germany during the Cold War, and we were always being briefed that Spetsnaz would be all over us. Well, you're the special forces expert in the room, Saul. So uh, what do you reckon? Well, I think this is another case of, of the Russian military generally being overestimated in its capabilities. And it's interesting, isn't it, that anyone who served in Germany in the in the 80s and 90s, you know, had this kind of terrible fear of, of Russian armoured power, Russian air power, and also what their special forces might do. I mean, there are a lot of them, it's, it's worth saying, although there are considerably less now since the start of the Ukrainian war. They were used or intended to be used to to capture Kiev, as Simon points out. They failed in that. More recently, interesting enough, Patrick, they've actually been used on the battlefield in the east, uh, and they've taken very heavy losses. There was a, a Spetsnaz brigade, or at least certainly battalion size, that was put into action. And obviously, the thinking is, you know, these highly trained, very effective almost paratrooper type British paratrooper I'm talking about the uh, Russian airborne aren't quite as effective you use them in this kind of you know aggressive uh, battlefield role and they're really going to make a difference well actually they've been badly mauled uh, and their capabilities have been severely degraded and just one last point to make because I seem to remember an interview we did very early on when we were covering the Ukraine war when we spoke to a journalist I can't remember which one it was who said that he had actually served with the Spetsnaz he'd gone on a mission with them and very early on he realized that maybe they weren't all they were cracked up to be because one guy said he'd basically forgotten the key equipment they needed for this raid so I, i'm afraid i do think it's another case of the the much vaunted russian capability not quite living up to the standards we expect of them yeah that was julius strauss who told a hilarious story about going into action with the spet stats and finding out that they had feet of clay Okay, well, that's all we've got time for this week. Do join us on Wednesday for a terrific interview we've got lined up, and then on Friday again when we'll be looking at the week's news and trying to make sense of it all. Goodbye. Goodbye.